our text this morning is probably very familiar to everybody in here since it's probably been read at every single wedding you've ever been to. And it's actually, I think, a, not a great wedding text. Um, as a matter of fact, I generally refuse to use it as a wedding text, and if I'm forced to use it, I generally want to preach on it so that people understand what it does and doesn't mean. But it's the, the love chapter from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to pick up in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and then that you would show us ourselves in your word. For your word is a, a mirror, says James, and we can look at ourselves in the mirror and not really take note of what we see and go away and forget what we saw in the mirror. And very often we want to do that. We don't want to deal with the things that we've been given to deal with. We want to avoid them. But there's no health in that, Lord. There's no goodness in that. There's no growth in that. So we pray that the, that the mirror of your word would be bright and clear and that we would gaze long in the mirror and that we would not only see ourselves, we would see you at work in us. For that is the hope of glory, says Paul, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are some words that we, that we use every day, and we very often don't stop to think about what they actually mean and what we mean when we use them. I, we've been after Jordan for years. She'll, she'll pick up a word. She doesn't know what it means, and she'll just use it, and it's like the most inappropriate, and we're like, you can't use that word until you know what it means, and you've got a phone and the internet now, so, so go look it up. Well, I, I recently had that experience on my own uh, concerning the word justice. I was discussing things, debating things with a person online with another man, and, and, uh, and he was talking about justice, and I was talking about justice, and uh, something he said forced me to ask myself the question, okay, what is exactly, what is justice? What is it that makes a law just or unjust? And I had never stopped to define justice for myself and to give it a careful definition so that I knew exactly what I meant when I was using it. And I'd been using it for years, and I'd sort of been figuring that I knew what it was. And I figured I'd know it when I saw it. It turns out that wasn't quite true. And I find myself in something of the same boat concerning the word kindness. Love is kind, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And that's really where we're going to focus our attention today. When you, you've got a sermon to write about love, and you get to the part that says love is kind, and you realize that you've got to write 20 or 30 minutes on what it means to be kind, uh, then you better be sure that you know what it means yourself, or it's going to be a, a short sermon. And some of you might wish uh, that I had not consulted the dictionary quite so closely. What does it mean to be kind? What is kindness? Well, I, I think we would associate it with a generosity. 
with a a benevolent uh, spirit, a benevolent nature, with a friendliness, with a helpfulness. None of that's bad as far as it goes. But it's not exactly what Paul is talking about here in this chapter. The Greek word that we translate into English as kindness is Christos. Christos. You don't want to get that mixed up with Christos, which is Christ. Christos means kindness. And it has an interesting history. In in Greek, uh, the Greek writers who write before the New Testament was written, uh, and they use that word, it, it first met to them excellent or useful or something that is well adapted for its purpose or something that's good according to its kind. So for instance, uh, I have a a, a pit bull that we adopted and everybody's afraid of pit bulls and I, I know they can be a problem, but this pit bull is so much not a problem. I wish he was more of a problem. This is the nicest dog I've ever had in my life. And when Wally showed up to grab my barbecue grill one time and she was out in the backyard, I was rushing to get home to make sure she didn't bite Wally. And she was wagging her tail at Wally and going, you see anything else in the backyard you want? You know, I mean, she was just not a guard dog, right? But she's really smart and she wants to please. And once she understands what you want, if she can do it, she'll do it. And all I, like, you, you teach her what to do and she'll do it. And so when we're having, uh, for instance, spiritual formation at my house and she loves company and she wants to come in and see all the people and be petted and I'll let her do that for a few minutes and I'll look at her and i say, Nova, scram. And that's all it takes. She'll go and then she'll stop in the hall and go, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, scram. And I might have to say it one more time, but she goes in the kitchen and then she just puts herself in her cage and leaves us alone. She's a good dog. She is Christos. She is well adapted. She's good according to her kind. Uh, not long ago, I, I entered a, a, an office equipment crisis. Um, I needed a new stapler, and, uh, and I went to Office Max and got a stapler, thinking that would be the end of it, and the thing jammed all the time, and, and you know that, that one time where you're going from a, a stick of staples to another stick of staples, and, and it would mess up at that transition all the time, and so I, I took it back, and I said, I want a different one, and they gave me a different one, and I tried that, and it didn't work, and I tried another one, and it didn't work. I, I said, well, you've only got three staplers at Office Max anymore, so I started ordering off, off of Amazon. I must have spent $70 of my own money on staplers. None of them worked, and finally some kind soul gave me one that works as a gift. And those, but I had, had had an old stapler that had finally worn out, and that thing just always worked. That old stapler was Christos. It was good according to its time. It was excellent. It worked well at what it was designed to do. Uh, I've had good hunting dogs and bad hunting dogs. We used to breed Brittany Spaniels. The good dogs were Christos. I've owned BMWs, and I owned one Renault. And the Renault was the biggest piece of junk I've ever seen. But the BMW, that was Christos. It was good at what it was supposed to do. It would roll down the road and it wouldn't break down. It was an old BMW, the new ones break down. When the word is applied to human beings, historically, it it took on another context, an added context of decency and of honesty and of uprightness in a moral sense. Um, reasonable human beings, said the Greek, were 
created to be people of virtue. Nature taught the Greeks that. The philosophers taught that. And a Christos man was a man who was what he was supposed to be, what he was designed to be. When it described the relations between people, it tended to be used concerning a person of high or noble rank who was interacting with someone of a a lower rank, and it was the idea that the person of high rank would treat the the person of low station well. The, the, The nobles and aristocrats were under this expectation that they would not just be wantonly cruel to their servants and to their animals, but rather they 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 thought the Greeks thought that you have an obligation to them to look out for their welfare. And so that person, that noble person, that person of means and power who looked out for those underneath him, the the captain in the army who took care of his soldiers, that person was Christos. And it's in that context that the word is picked up and used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, especially when it talks about how God treats his people. God makes covenants and promises to his people, and he he makes them according to his own nature as God. And and, and in other words, when God is making these covenants and he's making these promises, he's being who he is. He's expressing his character and his goodness. And who is he? Well, the Hebrews understood, the Jews understood, he is patient with us. He is full of steadfast love and mercy And in acting in accord with his nature, he is being Christos. He's being what he's supposed to be. And he's good at it. So you you can trust God because of his character to be who he is and to act how he should act towards those of us who are under him, whom he rules. You, You can trust this God. And the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, the Greek version called the Septuagint, they they called him Kurios Christos, the Lord of kindness. The Lord who always acts towards his people with steadfast love and with mercy and with compassion and goodwill and righteousness and truth. He's the God who sustains all of us in our existence moment by moment. You don't exist independently of God, whether you believe in God, whether you've come to God and through Jesus Christ and are at one with him through Jesus Christ, even if you reject all of that, you're never independent from God. He's always the one who gives you your next breath and your next heartbeat. You're utterly dependent on him for everything. And if, if he decreed it, you could, you could eat all the food in the house and still starve to death because that food wouldn't do you any good. And that's why we ask God, for instance, to bless our food. We want it to be good for us. And God does that. He's the God who sustains all of us in our existence. He's the God who sends the rain on the just and the unjust and who gives all of his creatures, both saved and lost, good gifts to enjoy in their lives. Gifts like food and sleep and sex and wine and music beautiful flowers and sunsets. He gives us forests and meadows. And he says, just enjoy my creation. He's the God who created the universe to have an orderliness about it that ultimately makes things like science and technology possible and for them to be good. And he treats all of us well. He treats all of us much better than we deserve. 
And then he sets apart a people for himself to the glory of his name, his elect. And to his elect, he treats us with an almost unfathomable benevolence. We who were enemies of his, who hated him, whose minds and will he had to repair so that we would turn to him. And he does that. He repairs the the mind and will of his people so that they come to him. And then he sustains them in that. And then he blesses them. And then he says, you're going to grow and you're going to become this magnificent, amazing creature. In the words of C.S. Lewis, you're going to become someone who people, if we saw you now, would be tempted to worship. And you are going to be set over my created order to rule it with me forever. And so we went from hell-bound enemy to glorified son. And he does all of that just because of who he is. Just because of his nature and character. He's just really good at being the God he's supposed to be. And all of this is because he is Christos. Now, isn't that so much more of a meaning, a fulsomeness of meaning than our first little pinched definition of kindness is just being nice to somebody. As a matter of fact, our, our English definition of kindness will get us into trouble if we apply it to the Christian life in postmodern America. Our culture has a definition of kindness, and in our culture, it's simply indulgence. It's simply letting somebody have their way whenever we can. L- listen to C.S. Lewis, who writes in The Problem of Pain and This was many years ago, and it's gotten even worse. He says, by the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his lovingness. And in this way, we may be right. And by love in this context, most of us mean kindness, a desire to see others than the self happy. Not happy in this way or that, but just happy. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. So our definition of kindness would have somebody being unkind if they did something that I didn't like, even if it was the right thing to do. Or or said something to me that I didn't like, even if it was true and the right thing to say. There's a Christian writer named Lewis Smeads, and he wrote a book called Love Within Limits, and he comments on this chapter in uh, 1 Corinthians, and he says this, God has limits to his patience, and so must we. Neither does patience include the toleration of evil. Kindness is both intelligent and tough. Without wisdom and honesty, it easily becomes mere pity, bound to hurt more people than it helps. And we're seeing that sort of thing today, aren't we? On on an economic and a political level, the, the, the driving ethic behind what today we call political liberalism and 
and of course all the other more leftward expressions of it like socialism. You know where that really starts? It starts with, a, I think, a noble intention. It's the idea that we need to alleviate pain. We need to alleviate suffering. And the government, they say, is the, the best way to do that to pool the resources and to let the government administrate that. So the government is supposed to alleviate the pain of others uh, with other people's money. And I, and I do think that the government should alleviate pain in certain circumstances. But often pain comes as a result of making bad or dumb choices. And, and God built that into the fabric of the universe. God, God created pain as a feedback to get you to stop making dumb decisions and to learn wisdom. I, I don't know about you, but I say that to my kids all the time. They do something dumb and it hurts, and I go, well, did you learn anything? And sometimes they go, usually they go, no. And I'm like, well, all right, go ahead and hit yourself in the forehead with that hammer again, and sooner or later you'll learn, right? Because it, sometimes you do things that are painful, and God builds that in so that you stop it. You cut it out. But if the government comes along with its checkbook and says, we're here to pay for your mistakes, to whom and for how much shall we write the check? That seems very kind, isn't it? When that happens, the government has just guaranteed that you and everybody else who is watching is going to go out and keep making those same dumb mistakes again and again and again. In finance, they call this moral hazard. The English philosopher Herbert Spencer said this, the ultimate result of shielding men from the effects of folly is to fill the world with fools, okay? And, and that's true whether you're a welfare recipient in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, who's built a house on a floodplain of the Mississippi River, or, or someone who is on Wall Street and who's a banker and who puts other people's money in dumb places and loses it and then comes to the government asking for more. So kindness, in the sense of 1 Corinthians 13, is not some milk-toast, weenie, weak-kneed thing. Kindness, in 1 Corinthians 13, in the Bible as a whole, is tough as nails. It is that quality in God which leads his elect people to repentance, says Paul. It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's concerned about the real well-being of the person who is the object of kindness. And if a certain course of action will do that object of kindness some good, then a kind person will pursue that course of action and will pursue it diligently. But if it won't do the object of kindness any good, it will not pursue that course of action, not, no, no matter how nice it would seem to do so. So much pain is involved sometimes in not giving people what they want or in not holding that person accountable or liable if they do do what they want. So, so what are some of the basic elements of kindness? Well, one has been mentioned already, and that is goodness. Kindness seeks the good of another person. And here's the key. God is the one who defines the good. You, you know, you meet some people that are very hesitant to discipline their children because very often discipline involves some sort of pain, whether it's a spanking or a grounding or something like that, and they don't want to cause them pain, and so they try and, and alleviate that pain. Well, what happens? The child doesn't learn anything, and God's book speaks about that. God, God teaches us that, that we should discipline our children 
in a way that does cause them pain when they do the wrong thing so that they won't do the wrong thing again. And so God is the one who defines what's good for that child. The, the second element of, uh, of kindness is something that we might call generosity. Kindness thinks nothing of spending time and energy and treasure on another person if it will actually do them good. Kindness is happy to help someone who cannot help themselves. Kindness delights to give and and delights to see the gift being well used and, and enjoyed. It isn't concerned to convey to the other person how costly the gift was. You might, my grandmother used to do that. You, somebody, she would, back in the days of price tags, right? She would give you a gift. She would leave the price tag on it. So you knew how much it cost, right? Do you have anybody that did that to you? And she wanted you to know, this is how much money I spent on you. See how much I love you? And she's just drawing attention to herself. She thought of herself as kind, but she was just drawing attention to herself. Well, kindness, true kindness, biblical kindness, isn't like that. It's not concerned to convey to the other person how costly the gift was or that they had other uses for that money, but it's uh, uh, so much better, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, to, to, to do this with it. So please tell me how great I am. Please tell me how generous I am. We, we all know that there's a way of giving things, and especially grand and costly things, that seeks almost to obligate the recipient to the giver, or it seeks to draw attention to the giver. And, and so the act of giving is then all about being noticed. That, that's not kindness. It doesn't have to be a physical gift. It can be an, an action. Many of us run our marriages this way. Many of us do things like say to our spouse, I have asked you to put the bathroom scale away when you're done using it so that it's not in my way. Now, I have actually, you, you've been neglecting that, and I have actually uh, put it away for you six times in the last two weeks, and you didn't even notice. That's not kindness. It's accounting. It's bookkeeping. Because the reasoning goes, if you noticed, you'd feel grateful and maybe sorry, and that would obligate you to me and put, to put a little check mark in my favor in the mental book that we keep in our marriage about who owes what to who in our marriage. And that check mark in my favor means that you don't get to grumble the next time I accidentally leave the newspaper on the floor and you have to pick it up. You can't grumble about the paper and, and, and feel like a martyr because you owe me six scale putaways. And if you don't notice, then I don't get my six scale put aways and, and on the balance sheet, and I have to put up with your grumbling about the newspaper. So I want you to notice all my suffering for you, you horrible man. You see how kind I am? Our marriages run that way. Kindness is not even in the room when you're operating like that. Jesus says, he says, when you do a good work, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And by that definition, a successful act of kindness is something that you've done for the other person and they don't even notice and it's okay. Because the credit goes not in the marital balance sheet that you're keeping with each other, but into God's book. 
and they become for you heavenly treasure, not leverage against the other person in your marriage. You, you want to know where all this is worked out day in and day out? It, it, it's not the, the bum under the overpass with the will work for food sign that is your usual place to exercise kindness. It's at home, especially at home. Because at home, you're surrounded by people that in general, perhaps, that you treat worse than you'd ever treat a stranger. You'd never say some of the things to a total stranger that you'd say to your spouse. You'd never treat a person with that kind of discourtesy, or your children, or your parents, your brother, or your sister, or your cousin, or your aunt, or your uncle. You'd, you'd never do that. Kindness begins at home. And so does unkindness. So, that, so there's goodness in kindness. There's generosity in kindness. Thirdly and lastly for today, there is what we might call mildness or a benign spirit, a, a graciousness, even a courtesy. This is the idea of good manners. And I think it's interesting that a little bit later on, Paul says it ex explicitly, love is not rude. It's not rude. Love is possessed with good manners. How many of our families would be much nicer places to be if we just treated each other with good manners? And I say that as one who was not particularly raised in a well-mannered household, or maybe I was and I just ignored it, I don't know, but, but just to have good manners. You know my, so, so when someone who's courteous spends time with someone who's not courteous, um, it, it's interesting. I, I uh, as I said, I was a, a barely tamed little barbarian. Um, somebody asked my uncle one time what kind of a family we came from, and he said upper middle class white trash. And um, that's just who we were, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not pretending. But I, I have an aunt who's still living. Her husband has passed away. I did his funeral a few years ago. And she was uh, part of San Francisco Jewish royalty. Her dad was uh, very high up in the business world. I believe he was a banker. He was, on, he was the, the chairman of the commission that oversaw the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, just a very classy lady, a very well-mannered lady. Um, and she obviously was very courteous. And I wasn't, especially as a child. And so this is my personal definition of, of courtesy. When someone who is courteous spends time with someone who is not courteous, the person who has the bad manners is not even aware of their own bad manners. He doesn't come away from the exchange feeling anything other than acceptance and love and care, even though he has violated every rule in the book. And so the person with bad manners wants to come back wants to be in relationship, and they come back again and again to spend time with the person who is courteous. And they find, lo and behold, over time, that the experience transforms them into courteous people themselves. It's a slow process, but they become better than what they were by imitation. Every time I go to Aunt Mary's, I'm treated this way, and I, I always appreciate it. And then I go, okay, well, maybe... Maybe that should rub off on me, and it does rub off on me. And I begin thinking to myself, what would Aunt Mary do in this situation? How would she speak to this person? How would she treat this person? 
And so we become better than what we were by imitation. And it's only when you look back, when you become courteous themselves or yourself, and you look back at how discourteous you were, and, and you realize to your horror, oh my, I was terribly rude. I wasn't even aware of it. And she didn't make me aware of it. I should go and apologize and say thank you and tell her what she taught me by her example. Someone once said, where did we get the idea that in order to make somebody do better, we had to make them feel worse? Think about the last time you felt humiliated or treated unfairly. Did you feel like cooperating or doing better? No. It doesn't work. The courteous or the mild or the benign person is patient under insult and injury. They're not critical in their spirit. If some feedback is needed, it's done quietly and privately and gently and helpfully. It's done in the same way that God generally deals with us in our sins, in our faults. That's what kindness is. And that's why we are to be kind. We are to be kind because in doing so, we are fulfilling the purpose for which God created us and redeemed us. And if we do that, we will become sharp and useful tools in our master's hand. And we will bear the family likeness before the watching world. Love is kind. Are you? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer.